welcome to Cycles of Orion. This is the first segment of Volume 1, Fire in the Dark, containing Chapter 1, Rebecca and the Time Traveler. Sit back, relax, and take yourself away into the world of the Orion Spur. Rebecca and the Time Traveler UMSD 43B.33566.906 The Town of Simpkin on Planet Agathon in the Fellowship on the Distal Spur The galactic quadrant containing the Orion Spur is further divided into the core, the mid-disc, and the outer rim. The known outer rim contains the remnants of a once great Damarian Dominion, now lost to one planet rogue states and minor tributaries. The known mid-disc contains the majority of human biomass. The Darwinias, Dyson, Mars, Agathon, Modos, and Corion II are all mid-disc worlds. The core contains Arcadia, though its boundaries remain unknown. The Orion Spur itself is a large density of mass within the Milky Way that runs between the Sagittarius and Perseus arms. At its midpoint is the Vela Ridge, which juts out into the mid-disc, and on the edge of the intersection between the Orion Spur and the Vela Ridge lies the birthplace of humanity. Worlds on the Earth side of the Spur are known as Proximal. Worlds on the other side are known as Distal. Agathon is a distal world. Congratulations, you just got through the most technical and boring thing that I'll ever have to tell you, and you're still here. Best to just get it over with, right? Right. Now, time for you to meet Rebecca. From the third floor of the library up, I could see the ocean beyond the hills to the south. With the windows open, I could even hear the waves licking the beach. Simkin's not a port town. There aren't any port towns on Agathon. There are cities on the water, cities with piers too, Simkin included, but today, on the horizon, I could see the sails of a small boat. Now, a boat alone is rare, but these days sails are practically extinct. Why would anyone want to sail when they could just as easily, or more easily, hop on a bus and be anywhere in an hour? I stood staring at it for ages. There, gliding smoothly through the blue, those tight white sails gobbled up the wind. Maybe the captain knew something that I didn't. Something that made sailing into a sane person's pastime. Probably she was a hobbyist, someone who had built the boat herself and so felt obligated to use it while the weather was permitting. Looking back on it now, the idea of sailing for fun never crossed my mind. To be alone on the waves, with nothing but a few layers of wood between me and the deep. The thought makes me feel small, and bound by invisible tendrils, being consumed by the raw fear that lives between terror and horror. Don't get me wrong, I'm not afraid of water. But it can't be helped in this day and age to make the connection between sea and space travel. And even though people insist on calling the void something romantic, like the endless sky, rather than something more chilling, like the bottomless deep, you'd never catch me on a shuttle off-world. I've never been off-world, never been on the sea, and in these days I rarely fancy either. I used to talk for hours with anyone who would let me, planning trips to one planet or another. I used to gush over the romance of adventure. Something must have happened. Maybe when my daughter came, I lost some wanderlust. Maybe I only ever loved the idea of adventure. It could have been any multitude of cliches, but the fact of the matter is I've never left Agathon. Back in the library, 
I looked up at the distant sky, blue, but not so endless as it seemed when black. The blue sky marked a comforting border between Agathon and the carnage beyond. Its horizon had been the backdrop to my whole life. This fragile little bubble, my home. The sky over Simkin was overcast. The clouds rounded like buns in a deep dish pan. They looked flat when I stood still, but if I shook my head back and forth, they shifted just enough to let me know they had depth. The only thing that I couldn't seem to move were the cracks. I felt like a flatlander on Psychos, trapped in two dimensions and tripping into a third. Psychos is the common blanket term for a variety of hallucinogenic chemicals, though it is most closely associated among humans with lysergic acid diethylamide. Looking out at the countryside like this was one of my simple pleasures. I'd watch the colors of my world dance, and even after a day sorting horrors in the library, it always managed to cheer me up. Agate libraries, named to carry on a conceived tradition of safeguarding information, are far from simple depositories of books. They serve as the hub for all community and communications activity for the settlement, and in the case of Arkeedon, for the whole planet. The libraries house laboratories, automats, garages, replicators, classrooms, auditoriums, arenas, gymnasiums, offices, conference rooms, lounges, museums, and of course, actual libraries. They are also where the sole connection to the extranet, which on Agathon is no more than a simple internet, is housed. Librarians are stationed at the mainframe of the library, where information is constantly streamed from the uplink in Arkeedon. That uplink is itself constantly downloading and uploading to orbiting warp drones, which then ferry information from system to system along the phase lane superhighways. This is a lot to take in, I know. But the more you know, the more fun you'll have. Besides, the latter half of this volume is nearly empty of these footnotes. You might be surprised to find that you miss them when they're gone. The leaves on the trees, bright red, green, and orange, danced a two-step back and forth before the greys and blues. Autumn, another awful cliché. Always the descent into death and darkness, always the last hurrah before the storm. Out with a bang and all that. Assuming, of course, that winter is offensive. Some people like the winter, the cold, the dark. Brings out the best of warmth and comfort. I would always think if there wasn't a reason for us to suffer through winter, the settlers would have built somewhere without seasons. An entire planet of biomes to choose from and they pick four seasons? There must have been good reason. There wasn't. The first colonists on Agathon were an offshoot group from a body who wanted to get off the grid and so settled on the first land they touched. A middle-aged Agni Chokshi was among the settlers. But we'll get to him. All these thoughts, the beauty of Agathon, the past, and good intentions, normally helped to relieve me in the face of the day's bad news. But today I couldn't find comfort anywhere. As chief librarian, I'd gotten used to hearing about war and insurgents abroad, but it was always through the mouth of pixels. I would often think, if only they would live more like us, the galaxy might be a friendlier place. Live the magnanimous life, the agate said. Love yourself as you might love another. Be tough when it counts. Make the hard and good decisions. Force yourself to improve. Force yourself into kindness. Sophistry. A way to justify the greatest hermitage in the galaxy. The last refuge of the human condition, they called it. More like a fallout shelter for the willfully resigned. Disillusionment was new for me. I'd traveled around Agathon, lived for years at a time wherever I went. I was born in Zenith, 
moved to Azul, then to Arkeden, where I met my husband. Then we moved around together, to Bakersfield, to Hailshire, and finally to Simkin, where I had Cameron. Good thing we settled here, too. No amount of community support could ever convince me to put Cameron in a mentorship. On Agathon, children are the most precious of resources. They are not bought and sold, such an idea, aside from being silly on the grounds of the Fellowship's lack of official currency, is despicable on most worlds outside of the Pax Republic. But agate children are, in a way, traded. Children are sent away from their parents at the age of five, or whenever they've been successfully weaned, trained, and taught basic skills such as toiletry and language. Then, they cycle through the community, one home after the other, learning from mentors the skills and ideas of an entire village. Through this wardenship, the Agate believe, the knowledge and tradition of their people is preserved, and for nearly two centuries they've been right. The children, once they have matured, are expected to focus on one or a few trades or arts while still retaining a working knowledge of how the rest of society functions day to day. That way, a tradesman is a farmer, is a builder, is a forester, is an artisan. Now this is all fine and good in theory, but most frequently a farmer only plows fields and a barkeep only keeps bar, just so. And regardless, fields must be plowed and bars must be kept, so the agate societal structure ends up looking identical to the structures of its counterparts across the Orion Spur. Life is never quite so different elsewhere as it is when you first imagine it. The rules differ, the expectations shift, but once you learn the dance, it's back to normalcy. The one exceptional feature of Agathon that sends off-worlders into a spin is the lack of any sort of familial structure. The nuclear family has all but disintegrated and been replaced by the aforementioned community. The exception to the exception, as there always seems to be, is Simpkin, Rebecca's home, where semblances of the mom-pop structure still exist as progressive movements. Rebecca herself was a mother and identified as such. She also identified as a wife to her husband, whom she presumed identified as a husband and, more importantly, as a father. And I say husband, but in reality a more fitting title would be life partner. There is no legal institution of marriage on Agathon. To them, marriage would run completely contradictory to the notion of love. Why, they ask, would you want to sign away the singular proof of true love? The greatest declaration of romantic love is to remain with someone through sickness or health, frustration or happiness, distance or proximity. So why would you sign away your ability to leave and so make staying meaningless? What greater testament to love could there be than to have motive to leave, means to leave, agency to leave, and yet deny it all? And if you'll believe it, it's in these sorts of explanations that the Agate gain their reputation as long-winded, smug, pretentious beatniks. My daughter Cameron had grown up in Simpkin, but was now abroad on Kelvin. Or was it Yarrow now? Off on some distant world, working some high-minded project for the Corps. Apparently the Federation had great use for Cameron's work, but only under a dense veil of secrecy. They had never bothered to tell me, her mother, when Cam was selected from the University of Abadi, or when she was relocated to the frozen wasteland world of Kelvin. And now I had to hear about these and Cameron's latest moves through the mouth of some spacer. More, was it? Twice the hero of Noonan, so says he. Fig Jam, so says I. Fig Jam, F-I-G-J-A-M, meaning, fuck I'm great, just ask me. A common agate chirp. 
this Moor had allegedly dropped Cameron on Yarrow on his way back to Agathon, and he couldn't be bothered to say anything more. And then, if that weren't enough, the same spacer, apparently one in the same psychopath who murdered the first consul of Darwinia, left from Simkin with my husband, all because of a new colony being built in the north to house none other than the Arcadians, with whom the Federation was supposedly at war. These were refugees from Noonan, so the story went, but they had originated from some Arcadian world or another, and to hear Captain Moore and his crew go on about them, you would think they were worse than the Dominion Plague. Upon colonization of a new world, one of the greatest challenges to the new colonists is combating the native microbiology. Often the first generation of colonists is confined to biodomes, even when the outside atmosphere is life-supporting as they wait for vaccines to be developed. But still, bacteria manage to get into the containments, and occasionally they manage to get off-world. The latest and greatest of these xenopathogen outbreaks came from Gemini 1, a frontier world within the Commonwealth. The bacteria killed only 300 before it was quarantined, but the open sores, blindness, and chronic pain associated with the disease were enough to cause widespread panic on the distal spur. Typically, symptoms would develop over the course of months, killing slowly and painfully. Back to the refugees. One of Moore's crew, an agate, wouldn't let up about the colonists being sleepers. The whole lot of them could be Seer's ace in the hole, she said. And it's not just her. Ever since word of Ion hit the net, people had been looking at the refugees differently. The city of Ion on Darwinia IV was the first to fall at the hands of Arcadia, ten agate years before this day. The city was destroyed, and with it the threat of Arcadian insurgents was abated for a time. Among those lost was Antonia Delfino, the first consul of Darwinia. Among the survivors, one Waylon Moore. I mean, how could you be comfortable with newcomers from a strange and distant place when they could just as easily be sitting across from you at the cafe, beaming your life to Arcadia? Any of them could be an Arcadian agent, and no one would be the wiser. Not even them. The refugees didn't look any different, didn't act any different, didn't know any different, and essentially weren't any different from your average human being. Until someone outed them, you could be entirely oblivious that you were chatting up a sleeper. That was what was up north in the mountains. That was what was populating this new town of Olympia. My husband had been researching Arcadia since the start of the war. Every day the two of us would shuffle off to the library. He to his labs, me to the mainframe. He never told me what they were doing down in that sealed-off basement, but recently he'd been arriving back home looking more and more neurotic. They'd found something. It made my spine shake to think that my homeworld was now being infested by the sort of terror that I had only ever heard of existing abroad. Agathon was supposed to be different. The Agate were supposed to be safe. There were some cells online webs of conspirators and such, out across the net from one planet or another, that were into the idea that anyone could be a sleeper, not just Arcadians. They say it gets to you through your mods. Lucky for me, there aren't many Agate modders. The whole fellowship swore off the stuff, usually spouting some paranoia about the subtle coercion of the masses by Big Brother Bot. See, we Agate never forgot why humans left Earth in the first place. We never forgot how an entire world, and nearly an entire species, had been annihilated by the next logical step in human evolution. On Agathon, we barely even use virtual intelligence outside of our libraries. But that's why I was worried. Simkin was for weirdos. 
It attracted social deviants and progressives alike. Modders, masochists, lacers, serial killers, and nuclear families all in one place. It also played host to a variety of shady spacer types, out of the sky to revel in anarchy for a while, or to spend a few months alone in the mountains. Usually no malice in those last ones, just the kind who like to get blitzed on psychos and plug into deep thought for a while. Contemplate the universe. See the ghosts in the Matrix. So far, they'd all been harmless, but it only takes one. <sighs> no, I'm not that kind of crazy. My kind of crazy was the catalog. I was responsible for organizing incoming data from warp drones. Rather than waiting millennia for communications to beam across interstellar space, the Federation employs the use of warp drones at speeds above the legal warp limit. This allows planets across the spur to communicate within days and ensures that interstellar trade, diplomacy, and extranet updates are kept relatively current throughout the Federation. Most planetary governments send drones out to other systems hourly, but a large number of information courier services have sprung up across the spur and cut that time by two-thirds. For a price. This monetization of information transfer has led many in Rebecca's time to proclaim the second fall of net neutrality. I saw the history of the Orion Spur unfold before my eyes every day. I didn't just read the news, I was the news. It passed through me, slotted into this box or that, came out the other end as a headline or an article. My colleagues and I were translators, interpreters, adapters, philosophers at times, but always most importantly, soap. Yes, soap. We were there to clear away the muck of opinion, the bias of proximity or ideals, and leave only sterile, clear, transparent truth, whatever that may be on any given day. And what muck was there for me to deal with as of late? Fear and destruction, rushing in from everywhere. Reports from the Corion Alliance of Arcadian Insurgents on Corion 1, the Corio made prisoners by legions of androids. Meanwhile, Corion 2 arms its planetary defense. Then there were reports of Darwinians across the spur rising up against local forces in the name of Arcadia, with Darwinia itself all but lost and pockets of resistance being stamped out minute to minute. On top of that, the Federation issued an all-points bulletin. Citizens were now to brace themselves for invasion, which could come at any time, from anywhere, as anyone or anything. Nowhere appeared to be safe. <sighs> and that was yesterday. My neighbors had already digested that news, felt it twist up in their minds, all sorts of rage and despair. They hadn't even tried to read what I wrote today, what I hadn't written today. There had been nothing from off-world, no new drones in orbit. Somewhere in humanity's long and terrible history, there had been a saying, no news is good news. That was before the net, back when communication was expensive, and so you would have to choose carefully what went out. Good news wasn't always urgent enough. Now, the spur needed to be kept up on itself. Forums updated, news carried, good or bad, memes disseminated, data, data, data. And when the data stops, when suddenly one world is cut off from the rest, it's as if that world has lost its head. And what do humans do when deprived of their heads? They blame the nearest, strangest thing that's come their way. I know I did. The refugees, I thought. Those damned, wretched refugees. A civilization killed by its own kindness we are. An Agathon, last refuge of the human condition. Last refuge of humanity. I pushed open the double doors to the front hall of the library, and I remember that a chill ran up my spine. 
On both walls leading to the entrance were floor-to-ceiling mirrors. But you're wondering about the chill, aren't you? It was nothing. Not even a draft. Don't worry about it. I did enough of that for both of us. A few times I'd heard that chills from nowhere meant someone was stepping on your grave from a past life. It hadn't occurred to me at those times that there was any truth to the idea, but when I looked into an infinity of myself, I wasn't so sure. Flanking me on each side were countless doppelgangers, all moving forward at pace. They all walked toward their uncanny destinations with the same gait, the same curious expression. I picked myself out, five times removed, and wondered if Fifth Rebecca knew anything that I didn't. Or maybe if I knew the most out of any of us. It could be that I wasn't even the real Rebecca. It could be that there were no real Rebeccas. But then, there would have to be, wouldn't there? At least one of them had to be the original, and it may as well be me. That settles it, then. So, why did I have the feeling that I was being called to from somewhere deep inside the regression? Why was the voice that wasn't there so warm, so inviting? Another chill ran up my spine, and I chased its cause. But the more I tried to find it, the further into the mirrors it seemed to flee. So I walked on, keeping my eyes on the worlds reaching out to either side, watching the endless watchers. The infinite Rebecca's and I walked out of the library. I heard an angry shout coming from the direction of the shuttle depot. More refugees were stopping in Simkin before heading to Olympia, and a small crowd of Agate had gathered to protest. I squinted, tightened my lips. My neighbors, the gallants, were screaming obscenities. Mary, at their head, was holding a sign that read, Gearheads be gone. The Arcadians lowered their heads in what I took to be shame. Shame for their people, shame for their leader. Many of them had bandages on their head. Apparently the Arcadians, or at least most of them, were given implants at birth. Made them easier to control. Just the thought was enough to shake me. These people were so foreign, so unreachable. Not that I wanted to reach them, and even if I did, it felt as though they were so far removed from the human condition that, really, I had no chance of understanding. The closest I could imagine were the Darwinians, and we Agate were already as bitter as could be when it came to them. The Darwinians have curved their evolution to the point of complete control over their genetic makeup. They live within a manufactured caste system wherein each individual is genetically tailored to be ideally suited to their particular duty within society. Their system makes for an extremely efficient machine, but has stifled Darwinian culture to the point of non-existence. There has been a long-standing feud between the Fellowship Commonwealth and Darwinia caused, of course, by their disagreement about the fundamental principles of human life. Should the human race evolve to suit its environment? Or should it bend its world to suit itself? Are we a part of nature, or its master? Does material abundance distance life from material responsibility? How many rhetorical questions are too many? I fancy myself as a bit of a philosopher. Call it a side effect of working at the library. So a few weeks ago, when Mary Gallant had gone on a rant about the Arcadian question, I decided to play devil's advocate. They're literally bred for domination. They dominate and they're dominated by that seer. They'll play nice, hmm? Oh yes, right until you show them your neck. That's when they pounce. Mary, there have been very few cases of refugees instigating violence. Hmm. Well, you better than anyone else should know that the feds don't let everything get onto those drones. We're talking about a race that lives in constant wartime, Becca. It's in their blood, so says I. 
You can't base a civilization off of something as whacked as that Marshall's ideas and then not expect them to turn the people into a crazed, heat-seeking swarm. For all their tech, they've got to be the most backward people on the spur, so says I. How else can you explain the sleepers that burn themselves in broad daylight, hmm? Well, I don't know much, but from what my sources no, say... Hmm. No, you don't. Nobody seems to. Nobody does. And yet here they come, down on my planet. I don't know much, Mary, but from what my sources say, the self-immolators were trying to stop themselves from integrating back into Arcadia. Burn out the circuits and all. Ugh. They're a techno-cult, remember? They believe the soul is transcendent, but physical. That it can be quantified and transferred. They're taught that when they die, they'll be brought back into the network and then placed into a new body. It's not all that unlike our own faith when you think about it. Not all that unlike our own? Well then, I suppose we should be shouting, Light, pray, preserve the seer then, shouldn't we? You know what I think, hmm? I think you've been spending too much time with those warp drones and the lies they carry from the feds. Well, I've got news for you, Ms. Librarian. I won't be pacified into watching my planet crumble in the fist of some android overlord, so says I. So should say all of us, I say. Enough of that memory. Mary's a twit. As I left the library, I watched as Jason Gallant bent, picked up a stone, and hurled it through the air. It pummeled the shoulder of an Arcadian who stumbled and yelped. The refugees ran and took shelter in the shuttle that had brought them. I turned and walked away. There was no stopping the Gallants when they were cruel at full force. This hatred, new and nauseating on Agathon, overwhelmed me, as if my heart needed the stress. I already had no way of knowing where my daughter was, or even if she were still safe. Surely, surely, if she's on Yarrow, surrounded by the fleet, she can't be touched. But that thought did nothing to soothe my nerves, nor did the absence of my husband, who is now surrounded by goddess, knows how many of those... <sighs> you know, I almost said things. Maybe it was a mistake to start a family, to live in this oddball city. If only I'd been like the others, you know? I arrived at my home. A knobby, brown-and-white wooden house built into a Nirmar tree. Nirmar trees are a native species to Agathon's only inhabited continent. Imagine, if you can, a tree resembling Earth's sequoias in girth and kapoks in form. And look them up if you don't know them, because they are gorgeous. The whole town was built into those trees. The library into the biggest of them all. I climbed the spiral staircase up to my level and pushed open the door. The scent of pecans was in the air, the result of a candle I'd lit before I'd left that morning. It was the same make of candle and the same scent that I used to burn in Arkeedon around the time I met my husband. And thanks to a heavy dose of nostalgia, it had the ability to recenter me and surround me with feelings of safety and affection. Of course, today it failed miserably. Something was in the air, a tension that escaped specificity, as if Agathon were in the eye of some storm passing overhead, the edge of that eye getting closer every second, landscape blurred by what could be fog or rain or hail or plants and animals ripped up by the winds. At such a distance, the only way to tell is to sit and wait until it's overhead. Days like these, one wakes up and feels that something is wrong in the world. It didn't matter what happened around me. The world was simply wrong. If only I could have placed the root of it, then maybe I could have done something. But then, all I could think of was the terror in the north. I'd just about closed the door behind me when I heard a distant zip, like the air was being torn in two a few kilometers off. My forehead burned up. I rushed back outside and grabbed the railing with both hands. Last gunfire, somewhere far off, echoed through the trees. 
Down on the ground, people had taken notice. Some looked confused, others petrified. More gunfire and screams, both from the north. A few down on the ground started running to their homes. I jumped down from my balcony and made a break for the shuttle to Olympia. Close by screams made me cringe. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a brown and blue mask coming out of the library. I stopped running and looked full on, but I almost wish I hadn't. A platoon of androids, five across and growing in length, was streaming out of the library. They broke off into smaller groups, herding people into clusters and flushing them from their tree houses. I ran as fast as I could toward the shuttle, but as I arrived, a beam of red cut past me and burned through its hull. A yelp came from within. An Arcadian was hit. A few agate ran from their houses with rifles and fired from their balconies. A lot of droids fell, but they were quickly replaced by dozens more marching from the library. Soon the resisting agate were suppressed or killed, and the droids kept coming. I looked back at the shuttle, at the Arcadian who'd been hit by the rock earlier. A droid bashed into the ground. Now, I couldn't possibly know what was going through his mind, what previous experiences had converged to produce in him the thoughts he had at that moment. Yet I swear we both understood something. There was a connection between us. It was as if our two lives, so far removed and running at such different speeds, had suddenly lined up at exactly the right moment to produce compassion. Like dissonant metronomes that match up for a few seconds before falling out of sync. Like an asteroid in a far-reaching orbit that every few centuries gets close enough to dazzle. At that moment, the galaxy seemed the size of Simkin. Thousands of parsecs reduced to mere meters, and my world, once safe and sound, was now one with the vicious void beyond. Two droids approached me. They were rough at the edges, with fringe at the joints where the printers cut them loose. One of them wiggled its rifle at me, and then at the growing corral of Agate. I remained still for a moment, and the droids took aim. So I raised my hands, and I joined the herd. I was thrown into a locker room in the library, along with eight other men. In the Fellowship, men is a unisex term referring to the whole of humanity. Think the Old English version of mankind. The sexes, male and female, are denoted by the words wehrman and weefman, respectively, and the genders range from zierman and Vietman to vorman and goman. This vernacular has yet to catch on anywhere other than the Commonwealth, and each state tends to have their own way of expressing gender, if not sex. Four hours later, I was still in the locker room, but the eight other men had turned into five. The first to be taken was an Arcadian from the shuttle to Olympia. He looked fresh from Noonan, with his head still bandaged where the doctors had taken his implants out. A big, bald wehrman saw the bandages and beat the poor boy to death. That same wehrman then got quiet for a while before attacking another wehr sitting next to me. This one he only knocked unconscious, but his aggression was enough for the droids to come in and take him away. They wanted us alive. The unconscious man, James, I'd heard, had been talking to the bald man, but too quietly for me to hear the topic. The third prisoner to go simply stood and walked out the door. I tried the same thing, but the door was tightly locked. There were three old whiffmen on the opposite wall. One was weeping, her eyes closed and face in hands. Another kept her eyes constantly moving as if frightened that something might attack her. She picked at her fingers erratically, which made a clicking sound like the needles of a furious knitter. The third whiffman stared blankly at James, who was huddled next to a drain in the center of the floor. With her right hand, she fingered a frayed thread on her cardigan. With her left hand, she made repeated snipping motions, like a crab popping bubbles on the seafloor. The final man in the room was a wehrman that I knew. 
Rupert, my husband's partner in the labs. He hadn't been taken away to Olympia by Captain Moore, and so he'd carried on their research alone. He sat with his back against the wall beside the door. Nobody said anything until James woke up. He was young, dressed in a long black tunic and a pair of glasses, as though he'd been studying at the library. The glasses weren't active, though. And then, even though it had gotten him into trouble already, he decided that I looked like I wanted to have a chat. How'd they get you? Were you in the library? I saw them coming from the library, so I imagine that it happened very fast. I was on the shuttle. The shuttle to Olympia. What? Off to Olympia where? I, well, no. I was coming here from Arkeden. Hmm. I'm an agate. I'm an agate. So says I. So says I, he says. Look, I can prove it. Ask me anything. And that helps us how? A bot could run a search. Now, hold on. Let's give Ware a chance. There are ways of finding out the bots. Fine. James, glasses off. But I don't even have a signal. Off. Okay, Ware. Quick now, where are you born? Azul, but I don't even understand. What's your first warden's name? Eliza. Your first transfer? Zenith. Four plus four? Eight. Six times six? Thirty-six. Twelve down eight? Four. Ten times eighty? Seven hundred. No, eight hundred. How many eight-digit numbers can be divvied by nine? Uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm not Arcadian. I'm not. Rupert glared at James and walked back to his wall. I looked after him, saw him shake his head. I sank back down on my own wall and watched the old Whiffman. One wept and watched a scene behind her eyes. One shook erratically and watched the room. One stared blankly at James, who was now huddled in a corner, clutching his knees, muttering something incomprehensible. I took a deep breath and thought of Cameron. She'll survive this, even if I don't. She's smart, and even if her father... Oh, but her father... When the droids had marched me from the shuttle to the library, I'd kept my eye on the sky. I watched the brilliant blue leak through the canopy of deep-dish gray, and jumped when I saw a ship reflecting light like a mirror. It was a sliver of a thing, going terribly fast, oblique to just about the vector for escape. I didn't know if it was him, but I hoped dearly. I shuffled over and stood next to Rupert. You must be worried sick. I nodded. Did you see what kind of ship he took to Olympia, I asked? Darwinian ship, a uh, sharp-looking thing. Look, Rebecca, there's a good chance that he'll be, uh... I always had to get to the library earlier than he did. Drones came in early. But, you know, he'd always get up before me. He'd be up before the sun. Never let the sun catch you sleeping, he'd say. And he'd hobble over to the kitchen and make us something. I don't know, something simple. Eggs, mostly. <laughs> Always bloody eggs. It doesn't sound so great, maybe, but... No, it's, it's wonderful. You, you had him trained well. Don't say that. He always hated it when people said that. Made him feel like a dog, like his whole sex was savage and in need of reform. Of course, he'd also say the Y chromosome is pretty flimsy. No, he did it out of love. He didn't have to do it, he just... I saw that ship leave, you know? That shiny silver one, the Darwinian thing? He was on it. Be sure of it. He's probably on Kelvin right now. Yarrow. Kem's on Yarrow. Here's hoping he found that out. And I hope they have an easier time forgetting about me than I'll have forgetting about them. At least in the time I've got left. Nobody's gonna forget about anyone, Rebecca. This too will pass. 
These things always pass. It's okay, Rupert. I'm okay. Take care of yourself. I, uh, you know, there's a certain significant other who isn't much for sympathy either. I know. We're married. We ought to be alike in a few ways, hey? Whenever we'd get into a fight, I used to tell him, we hate the things most similar to ourselves. Oh, it'd make him so mad. Oh, but that wasn't hate. I never told him the second part. I've always thought that if we can find ourselves in others and not hate it, actually appreciate it, or honor it, enjoy it, respect it, that's love. So thank you, Rupert. Thank you. I walked back to my wall in tears. I thought about Cameron, then about the day that led me here. And now I'm thinking about James and Rupert's questions. After a few minutes of running the questions over in my head, I find myself thinking the strangest thing. 189,440, whatever that means. Then looking up, I see one of the old Whiffmen stand and let go of the cardigan she'd been unwinding. The door opens. She leaves. The door shuts. This has been the first segment of Cycles of Orion, Volume 1, Fire in the Dark. Starring Michaela Macht as Rebecca, Madeline Funel as Mary, John Moore as Rupert, Brendan Ahern as James, and E.P. Dannis as the narrator. Thank you for listening, and tune in next month for segment two, Margaret and Jacob and the Time Traveler. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, share on social media, and check out our Patreon for updates and exclusive content. Or, if you want to read more from E.P. Danis, head over to epdanis.com.